Nehemiah chapter 2 tonight. We are just finishing chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. We did start off this series asking the question, why would God put so many resources and leaders, money, and material to build a wall around Jerusalem if he really didn't need such a natural barrier to protect it? So tonight we will see the answer to this question and also see how to how a change in Nehemiah pursued the call of God from how he began in chapter 1 where he was copying the work of others to what we see here in chapter 2 where he inspires people who became accustomed to a status quo to rise up and to change it. We're actually going to get into a lot more than this in these few verses. As we look at Nehemiah 2 here, we're going to see that there are some things that you should not share with other people about what God has put in your spirit to do. We're also going to see some things from Nehemiah on how to get started in something God's called you to start. We learned many things from Nehemiah here in these these verses. Last week we saw that love ignited a call on Nehemiah's life. He had a love for God. He had a love for his people. He had a love for a city that he never actually knew. But since it was important to God, it became important to him. It pulled him away from a comfortable place and lifestyle, a lifestyle in the palace serving the king, and right into a battle zone. Made note last time that love will get you into the battle, but it's knowledge and it's proper use that will win battles. Just because we set out to fulfill our call doesn't mean we will do everything right. And Nehemiah didn't do everything right to set out in his call, but he sure made some changes. Nehemiah, he had to grow in confidence, faith, purpose, and in taking the fight to the enemy. And he gets thrown into the frying pan here in the rest of chapter 2. So, verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one which I rode. Now it says that he told no one. And sometimes we err in telling everyone about all that God shares with us or puts in our spirit to do. And that's not always something that we ought to embark in. I learned this from studies in Nehemiah decades ago and have put it into practice. And of course, there are some people that you can share more than others. But sometimes, not everyone is in a place to hear a spiritual truth or an assignment without their flesh empowering their tongue. And those things that they say can hinder us. They can make us think that our purpose, that our calling that what we heard, what truth was revealed, was not from God at all. Sometimes we share things just too early, and we haven't let God fully develop it yet. We don't have a clear view of it. So we get a clouded view. We give a clouded view, actually, to people that are around us at best, because we haven't fully developed it. I think the best example I've seen in, in my life, and not everybody gets to have this example, and nowadays I don't think anybody does. But a long time ago when I was in high school, I got into still photography. 
and for whatever reason I got into developing. Uh, it actually took a lot more equipment and cost. I was able to do some of it in the high school. The high school had their own dark room. So we had a dark room, light would come on, on the outside, we were inside doing these things and we would shoot. I actually shot a lot of pictures for the yearbook in the years I was in high school. And most of the shots they would do were in black and white and we would develop them right there in the in the school. So I would go out, I'd shoot a roll or two and I'd bring it back on in and I'd develop it. Well as you're developing the you develop the film first and then you have to make the prints on the paper. And then you take the print on the paper and you put it into the different solutions that are there and that brings the, the picture out. So I have had many a time when I'm sitting there watching the image and you, you watch it develop, you watch it develop, and then you have to pull it out at a certain time when the picture you feel is f fully developed. If you leave it in too long, you overdevelop it. If you pull it out too soon, you underdevelop it. We don't have that issue anymore because now everything is digital and there is no real developing of those things, but this was back in the day, I guess we could say, when we did all these types of developing. And so you would see the image begin to come come to life in front of you. Sometimes we begin to speak about an image that is starting to come to life in front of us, but it hasn't been fully developed yet. And we start talking about it, but we don't even ourselves have the full picture of it yet, but we try and communicate it to other people. This is where you get into trouble. A lot of times we just need to keep our mouth shut until the, the, the vision is fully developed, until the truth has been completely revealed until we understand what it is that God's trying to say and what it is that God's trying to do. And Nehemiah gave himself time for this. He was going to let God fully develop the vision in him before he spoke about it to anyone. Because there are people that will cast doubt on what you know and what you have faith in right now. But they're going to be speaking from their flesh-empowered tongues. And you don't need that in your in your life. You don't need that on something that you're just trying to bring about. You're just trying to develop. So he went at night to reduce the number of people who would be seeing what he's doing and asking questions. As if they have a right to know what we do. There are a lot of people in your life who feel like they have the right to know everything that you do. Everything that you get involved with. And some people certainly have more of a right to know some of the things that you do than others do, but that doesn't stop people from still feeling they have a right to know everything that you're doing. Some employees feel like I have the right to know everything my boss is doing, and really they don't. Now it also says he he didn't bring any other animals with him except for the one he was riding on. I'm pretty sure the animals wouldn't say anything about what he was doing. But he probably didn't want to uh, have things be too noisy and draw attention to himself, so the fewer animals you have, the less attention that you are drawing to yourself, and he does not want to get any extra attention on this. We're going at nighttime. We're going with as few people as we can. We're going to take a look at things that are there. Verse 13, And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and reviewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Now he's only heard about this. He's not seen it. He's heard about it from the people who came up and the last one he got a report from really disturbed him. He didn't like it. And it caused him to be sad in the king's presence. But now he's getting a first-hand look at what's going on. And really his first-hand look at Jerusalem. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. 
So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Now to help you out, those that are on our email list for Wednesday night, I sent you some pictures in which you can take a look at some of the things we're going to put on the screen here. If you want to call those up, the first one we're going to pull up is the one that says Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. And if we can uh, have that on the screen, folks online won't be able to see my nice little green pointer. But I'm pointing to the lower left corner of the city, which will read Valley Gate right there. We're going to have another picture that's going to come up. It's going to show the picture of the Valley Gate over towards another wall, which is, for those that are here, in this section. That is uh, the older city. This has actually been expanded, and I believe this has been called the Wall of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, I think, expanded this in, in this area. So the valley gate is down here, the lower left corner. And if he came out from here, and then as it said, he was going over to the serpent well, which I don't find on any map, and the refuse gate. The dung gate and the refuse gate seem to be the same thing, and that is moving from the valley gate to the right. Down at the bottom, you'll come to the dung gate. And then you're going to come up here to a pool. This is actually the, what is known as the Pool of Siloam. Here he calls it the King's Pool. It says there was no room for the animal to pass there, so he wasn't able to get into this section. He then says he went up by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate. Now there's a valley over here. The valley of the of uh, Kidron is over in this way. So if he came up, he may have come up. But he doesn't mention the horse gate. He doesn't mention the east gate. He doesn't mention the sheep gate. These are all very big gates, very popular gates, very well-known gates. He doesn't mention those, so it would seem like he did not go that far. In Nehemiah chapter 12, he's going to give a tour of this, and he's going to go over all the gates. So we're not going to talk about the gates and the significance of them here. We'll look at them later on. So it seems like all he covered was from the valley gate here, down to the dung gate, and then up north somewhat. How far exactly, I, I don't know. He doesn't really give a stopping point, just says that he continued and then turned around and came back and entered through the way that he came, which is the valley gate. So that would only give him really a view of about one-third of the city walls. If he viewed some other parts of the walls on some other nights and didn't give the description, I don't know, can't really speak to that. We're just going with what he has given us here. Seems like he had a bit of difficulty getting through all this, these gates that were here, the fountain gate. It was there. The water gate probably got up as far as that, it would seem. Seemed like he saw these and the disrepair that they were in and how they were burned and so forth, but does not give the full description of all the things that were going on there. If you um, go on to our second map, and that map is the Jerusalem in the time of Nehemiah, and then gives the size of the thing there. It's a very detailed map here. And what you're looking at from predominantly, is the wall of the old city. Up here in the upper section is where the temple would be. And this is the first area of the walled city. When David took this, this would have been the walls of the city. I believe this part down here in the south was added. And then all this area over here is that extra expanse, the wall of Hezekiah, and I think another king's name has been put on that as well. This is an expansion of the, the city. That's what it would have looked like in Nehemiah's day. 
If you go on to our third picture, and this is Jerusalem in Jesus' day, just to give you a comparison of it here. This would be the section, the uh, green, the two green sections that are there, and the gray section are the sections of the city we've already shown you in the other two maps. The orange section up here at the top, or tan, whatever color you want to call that, that is part of the newer city that happened after Nehemiah's time. So this was not here during Nehemiah's time. You'll notice on this picture, down here in the old city, the city of David, there is a valley gate. And that probably is the first valley gate that they have. When the city was expanded, it would seem that the valley gate was moved to that location I told you about in the lower left-hand corner. And that was made the valley gate. This may still be called the valley gate, but they add also the, this part here. And that would lead you out to the Hinnom Valley, which is labeled right down at the bottom of the map there for you. Now, you will notice on this map that have a nice big section of the temple. I believe one of the maps I had picked up, maybe, I think it was that second one, had a smaller section of the city dedicated to the temple. If you remember some time ago, we spent some time on the Temple Mount and that the actual Temple Mount that people go and worship at and so forth is not actually a Temple Mount at all. Because Jesus had said that the uh, not one stone would be left upon another of the temple. And so for that to have been the temple, there would have been stones left upon each other. But there was nothing left of the temple. And we showed you evidence that that was actually a Roman-built garrison. And that's where their fort was that they had to control the area. And I'll give you a number of things about that to show you some evidence for it, that the part of the temple was actually smaller and not on that section. So the people who say, well, we have to get rid of the dome of the rock in order to be able to put the temple there are wrong. The uh, Temple Mount is not there, but actually you, we gave you some other evidence too of some other places that you could right now build the temple and not have any problem at all and it still be within Scripture. But we're not going to spend all that time on that. We have done that before. If you weren't here, I can try and find some of the notes on that or, or where it was that we covered it and send you some information on it. But right now, I just wanted you to you have a comparison so that you know what the city looks like in Jesus' day compared to what it looked like in Nehemiah's day. Don't think that sit pictures that you saw in Jesus' day are exactly the same as what Nehemiah was seeing here. Those walls are the ones that he's trying to build. The old city walls and then the walls that extended around the, the new part of the city, which was a new part for, for them. There would be a newer part coming out later on. All right, that's all we need the maps for. So it seems he did not go completely around the city in his tour. And it may just been the difficulty of it. It was nighttime. Whatever the reason was, he didn't go completely around it. But he did get to see some of it. And that was apparently enough for what he needed to do. Verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. He told no one. No one who's in charge. No one who he would be calling on later on. No one who would be doing the work. Nobody knew. Not even the priests. Not the nobles. No one was told what he was doing. Now withholding information is not the same thing as lying. And he withholds information here about his trip. Don't ever lie about what you do. But you don't need to reveal everything in order to remain truthful. 
That's a truth that gets confused a lot of times and the devil tries to trip people up in this thinking, well, if you don't reveal everything, then you're not being truthful. So, just so you don't think that's a, a, a doctrine that I just dreamed up, I'm going to show you some things in Scripture. A lot of times you can just say to people, I'm not ready to share that yet. And that should suffice. They may say, they maybe sense that, hey, you seems like you have more purpose in being here than what you're telling us. Well, I'm not ready to share that yet. And they should be okay with that and just, just go on. But you remember that Jesus began to teach people in parables. Why? Because he didn't want the truth revealed to them. In Mark 11:27 through 33, it's not in your outline, you can write that down if you want to. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? So they were asking him a question. We want to know why you're doing the things that you're doing. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So I'm going to ask you a question. If you answer me, then I'll give you an answer on what you're asking. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they responded among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all kind of John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So, they did not show themselves to be people who knew a simple truth, John's baptism. Was it from God or was it from men? They didn't know that. If they did know it, they didn't want to share it. So he says, if you're not willing to share this, I'm not willing to share this. And he left it at that. So he let them know there's stuff here I'm not telling you. I'm not revealing it to you. And you proved yourself not worthy to receive it. So he asked them a question on this one. Think on this. How much did Moses not share with the people that God revealed to him? Can you think there might have been one or two things that God shared with Moses that Moses couldn't share with the people? Boy, I'll tell you what, I think there were hundreds of things. Because he could trust Moses. Moses could understand. He could receive spiritual things. The people? No, they couldn't receive spiritual things. They had a hard time with, with flesh things. They're not going to get that. So there's probably much that Moses received from God. And Moses says, well, you know, I can't share this with them. I can't tell this to them. How about John? When he was in heaven and seeing the vision of the tribulation unfold. He was not allowed to reveal everything he saw unfold or spoken in heaven. He was told, don't write this down. This is not to be revealed. Don't don't be speaking on this yet. And there are other times and situations in, in Scripture where God said, all right, do not tell this until later. Jesus told his disciples, don't speak of this until after. Remember when the transfiguration happened? And Jesus said, all right, this is for you, but don't you talk about this to anybody until after I have risen. So, not everything is supposed to be revealed. Some things are kept kept back until people are ready. God had a plan for Israel after the 70 years of captivity. But no one asked him about it. No one knew to ask him about it. When Daniel finally did, he revealed it to him. He was waiting. When Daniel asked, he was it was revealed to him. So there are many times that things are withheld. Nehemiah is not in the wrong in withholding this. Things were not quite ready to share. He would have had more opposition in the beginning just in scoping things out. 
But he let God develop the vision. He let God develop what he was doing. And then he came out there and he shared it. Sometimes God can even give you a spiritual truth. And you begin to try and speak this to other people. Well, they have not seen the things that you have. You have not fully developed the truth to where you completely understand it. It's going to be hard for them to be as excited about that truth as you are. So you have to be careful. We're sharing some things. Some just need to be kept with yourself until it's fully ready. Ready to go out there and to speak to them. It's not their fault. I remember uh, one time we had a, one of my visiting professors come up from, from school. And he came here to minister to the church. This is many years ago. And I remember he had talked about saying he didn't have a whole lot of friends. So while we, he and I were out at a meal, but just by ourselves, so I began to talk to him. I said, well, I'll begin to talk to him like I would a friend. That didn't go very well. So I began to share with them some things. Well, I feel like God's developing this in me to, you know, series coming up. And he just shot it down. Just immediately shot it down. And, and I don't even remember what the series was, what the thing was, or whether I ever went back and pursued it after that. But I had to learn, you can't share everything with people. Sometimes you've got to wait until you yourself are fully developed in it. But they also may not be developed to the point where they can receive it. So you have to be careful in those things. That doesn't mean God doesn't want you to share some. Sometimes God is saying, now share this with them. He may lead you that way. And they may have another part of that that can help you. But just don't feel like you have to just gush about everything. Verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. Now, it's been about 90 years since the first group came from Judah, came and saw the dilapidated conditions of Jerusalem. And after 90 years, you can get kind of used to those conditions being normal. This is just the way that it is. If you were to to buy a home that had some disrepair in it, you would probably immediately come in, oh, we need to fix that. Oh, we need to fix that. Oh, we got to paint that. We got to change this. And immediately set out to do that. But if you were in a home that you started out new and you've been in it for a long period of time and things just gradually begin to wear down, you may not jump on it quite as quick kind of get used to it being the status quo. They've had 90 years to get used to this. Now, not everybody's been there for 90 years, but for as long as they've been there. Been there 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 20 years, whatever it is, this is the state that this place has been in. The gates are burned with fire. Well, they were burned with fire way back when Nebuchadnezzar came through. And that was an extra 70 years before the, the 90 started. So, so they've been sitting there for something like 160 years. Burned. Same condition. No one uh, has fixed all the gates. We know that Ezra, when his group, first group came down, that some of them set out to repair some parts of the wall, received opposition, and eventually quit. So the wall sat there. So there may have been some parts that had been begun to be cleaned up, but apparently the gates are still there, burned with fire. And this is just the state of things. So can you imagine... 
You're not entering and exiting the city through the gates, which would be the easy place to do it. There's roads. You have to go through some broken down parts in the city, and that's how you get out. I don't know if that was such that all gates wouldn't allow passage, but it sure seems like some of these gates did not allow passage anymore. Now, he got through the valley gate. That's how he, he came in. And apparently, he, as far as he walked, he had no other entrance into the city. He came all the way back to where he started. And that's where he entered the city. Entered back. He said he came, came in the same place he had gone out. Well, you can get used to conditions and just not be all that excited about fixing things up. But he got them to a place where they said, let's rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. So they went right after it. Not only did he allow God to develop this vision in him, he allowed the people to get to a place where they would receive this vision that he had for them. And maybe they had begun to anticipate something. Why is Nehemiah here? Nehemiah serves the king. He, you don't serve the king and just come in by yourself. So he came in to the city, probably with some people who made the trip with him. The king probably sent him along with some folks to uh, somewhat of a fanfare. He may have come in even with some building materials. Don't know if he's sent out to get all the building materials, but remember this wall is going to be built in 52 days. It seemed like he came in with something. So you're seeing this guy come in with a bit of fanfare and some, some stuff. What is he here to do? And those three days may have been allowing God to build inside the people the vision that he had built inside of Nehemiah and the love for changing the conditions of the city. They could have uh, come to see any efforts to change what they see in the city, the status quo, to be a failure. They know that the early ones were a failure. They have, may have just come to believe that if we try and change anything in the city, it's just going to fail. Put in your outline, great desire for change cannot always by itself overcome the belief that nothing will change. You may greatly desire change, but it doesn't mean that it will overcome the belief that you will change. There's many people who greatly desire a healing in their body, a change in their situation. But just because they greatly desire it does not mean it will bring about a change. We have to overcome that unbelief that we have or that belief that nothing will change. Because we can become so accustomed to how things are in our life. The change to improve seems impossible. We can't overcome how things are or how I feel about them. What we have access to is insufficient to enact change. Well, I have access to this little bit over here, but that's not going to that's not going to change anything. The guilt or inadequacy I feel will always be with me. We may feel like that's a, a hindrance to us. But in 2 Corinthians 5:17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. That's something we have to come to believe. I have to build up in myself. No, no, no. This is how things have been, but we are moving to a different way, a different place. In Christ, realities are difficult to embrace 
I misspelled that, I apologize, to embrace when we won't let go of the past. In Christ realities are difficult to embrace when we won't let go of the past. If I want to do the things that God says I can't in Him, then I have to let go of who I was. I have to let go of the flesh. I have to let go of what doubt and unbelief brought me into. If they want to get to a place where Jerusalem is no longer a city with burned gates and broken down walls, they have to let go of the vision they've had for 90 years and embrace a new reality. Nehemiah's inspiration includes these things. Current conditions are evidence that things used to be much better. Not just a testimony of current day distress. You look, look around here. You see the broken down walls. You see the burned gates. That's not just a testimony of your current day distress. That tells you that things used to be better. And that's what he's inspiring them to do. Look at this. You see that burned out gate? That means it was once a beautiful gate that people used to walk in and out of. See those broken down walls? That means there was once a wall of protection here that held the enemy out for a long period of time. What you're seeing as broken down is evidence that things used to be much better. If we change what we see presently, we will be, we will be able to envision what God will take us to. We've got to make a change in what we see presently. If I keep waking up and looking out and all I see is broken down walls and burned gates and I come to the end of the road where it ends because the gate has collapsed and I have to walk around through a broken down section of the wall in order to get out of the city. I need to see a change. God did this before. He can do it again. God built Jerusalem into a glorious city. Magnificent magnificent city and now look at all that is already on our side look at all the words of the king look at all the resources he has sent look at all that my God has spoken to me to do and look at all that my God has done he's done all this to bring about a change verse 19 but when Sanballat the Horonite Tobiah the Ammonite official and Gishim the Arab heard of it They laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. When people who are not of the light see those in the light come into blessings, they rise up. As long as people in the light are are pushed down, not able to do anything, not receiving anything, they're okay. Go ahead, you be people of the light. You stay on down in the condition that you're at. We're all right with that. Their pattern is usually similar. And here we see two or three of the early things that darkness does against the people of light. First off, they laugh. People of darkness ridicule the blessings as nothing. And how can you see your God behind this? They laugh at you. They ridicule you. You think God kept you from getting sick? You think God kept you from dying? You think God healed you? You think God gave you a raise? They laugh and they ridicule. 
the blessings that you have, that you speak of, that you say, well, God blessed me with this, that's nothing. That's nothing at all. They laugh and they ridicule you. That's one thing that they'll do. Second, they despise. They call those blessings we claim as not what we say they are, and they're not worth anything. They put down those blessings. You think that's a blessing from God? Let me show you what I have. And they try and use that as a comparison. They laugh. They despise. People of darkness will find people of light who begin to rise up. And they will do everything they can to ridicule them. And then they will do everything they can to despise them and to make them be despised in the eyes of others. They will come after them in every which way that they can. Because the goal is if we can get them to be despised, then no one will follow them. And if no one will follow them, they won't lead Israel out of this, of this state that Jerusalem is in. And Jerusalem will continue to be broken down and a laughing stock. There's the third one. They accuse. If those tactics don't make us move away from them, we are accused of things that have no foundation. If you want to see the people of darkness, if you want to see them come out, the easiest way that I know of is to do this is to look at those who laugh with scorn at other people. Look at those who despise and trying to bring other people to be despised. And look at folks who continually accuse without foundation. They just keep throwing one thing after another. They did it with Jesus. They had people come up and give false testimony to try and accuse. They did it with Stephen. People came up with false testimony to try to accuse. No one would be in agreement with themselves. And they have other places in the Bible where they would do this. They would accuse. They would accuse. They accuse Paul of things to try and get the city in an uproar. They will do this. The people that are that way, that are constantly accusing certain people of light, people that are in the light, just know they have identified themselves as people of darkness because of their constant accusations. There's no foundation for it. Once this thing falls apart, they find another accusation and they come up with that. When that falls apart, they find another accusation and they come up with that. When that falls apart, they come up with another accusation and they just keep coming. You may think, surely they'll get tired. No. This is the tactics of the enemy. They laugh, they despise, and they accuse. This is what he is facing here. This is what he's seeing. When this happens to you, and it will, the more noise you make, the more people around you that you try and rise up to do things in the light, to follow after the light. Follow Nehemiah's example here and stand your ground. They say you have nothing. This is what what, uh, Nehemiah says. So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. He stands his ground here. He says, you guys, says this to the accusers, to the despisers, and those who laugh, you have nothing. Not an accusation. He's not making an accusation against them. He's making a summation of their statements. He is basically telling them this. God will prosper us. You're saying that God won't. God will prosper us. God's servants, we're the ones who are going to rise up and build this thing. 
but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Well, of course not. They just distanced themselves from the God of heaven. They just distanced themselves from the God of Jerusalem. So he's just saying, you've got no heritage, you have no right, and you have no memorial here in this place. You have nothing. That's what he is saying to them. He's not accusing them. He's just merely stating a summation of all the things that they have said, what they have done. Now, Nehemiah started out imitating things that were successful for Daniel, but really not applicable in his time or situation. He has grown. He, is not, he did not stay there. He has grown from that as likely there is nothing to copy here. <laughs> he, is, he doesn't know anybody who's been in this situation before. He can't copy anybody. i got to listen to the Spirit of God on this one. He copied Daniel. He thought that situation looked like his situation. He copied that one. That worked for Daniel. Maybe it'll work for me. But now he's facing a situation I don't know anybody who's gone through this. Ezra went through a few things in this area, but he has listened to his spirit and in his spirit has come up what to say and what to do. So he spoke what to say and inspired the people who went from looking at the walls and the burned down gates for 90 years and suddenly, now they say, let's build. How hard is that to get people who have looked at the burned out gates for all these years to listen to a guy who's been here for three days. Hey, we need to make a change. But they did. Because Nehemiah learned how to listen to his spirit, received the things in his spirit, and he spoke those things out. And he also spoke those things out against the people who came against him. So he's grown. He's learned how to tune into his spirit. Now, many Christians will take on faith projects like healing or whatever it is that there's a need for in their life. <clears throat> and they start out imitating the faith of others. How many of y'all know that? may even been us. We start out, we imitate the faith of others. Well, so-and-so did this. Well, so-and-so threw this away. Well, so-and-so did that. You're listening to uh, Brother Price this week in the, from the Monday video. He talks about faithfulness and presumption. He talks a lot about people who just basically imitate what other people have done. You have to get past that. That's where a lot of people start out. Well, they went down into this prayer line and they got healed. So I'm going to go down in that prayer line and I'm going to get healed. They just imitate. But they didn't build up that faith in the inside of themselves like other people may have done before they went down. If we never move out to doing or obeying what comes to our spirit, we won't see success. We'll just see frustration. I've got to, got to get myself to the place where I will move out and do or obey whatever comes to my spirit. Whatever it is that God spoke to my spirit, that's what we're going to do. That's what Nehemiah did when he faced the things that he saw there in Jerusalem. When he looked at how do I need to inspire these people. Nehemiah didn't have a whole lot of, of folks that he could really rely on that he could look at and imitate. But he knew in his spirit, don't say anything yet. And so he didn't say anything just yet. And when it was time, he spoke those things that God gave him. And he inspired people to get out there and to change. Now, why put out the call, engage good leaders, because Nehemiah is not the only leader engaged in this, and apply resources to something not really needed? When you look at the children of Israel in their history, there was no wall in the wilderness. And God protected them. 
There was still no wall around them when Joshua led them into the promised land. Abraham, when he went into the promised land, followed God. He had no wall. He had tents that were set up and they moved them from place to place. Isaac, Jacob, the same thing. They had no wall. They had tents. They set tents up in the wilderness. They sent tents up in the field. They moved from place to place. Even David was without walls running from Saul. The one time he was in a walled city that we're told about in the Word, he said, will they turn me over? He said, yeah, they'll turn you over. So he didn't even have any safety in the walled city. But God's protection was still there around him. So if God shows that he can protect people without a wall, and he has protected the people there for 90 years without a wall, and he's protected his temple for all these years without a wall, why would God call someone to build a wall around his city if he doesn't really need a wall to protect it? So I wrote down three things. First, we get out of verse 17. Verse 17, when it says, We have become a reproach. He will protect us from reproach, so his name is not reproached. That's something that he has shown us in his word. He will protect us from reproach, so that his name is not reproached. Moses used this understanding in his intercessions for the people of Israel. David used this understanding in his fight with Goliath. You have reproached God, therefore you're dead. I'm just coming in and collecting the things. That was an understanding that they had and they would walk in. There's other people in the Bible that you can find who did that as well. Jonathan even walked in this truth when he set up that that battle. He and his armor bearer went out and they, they fought against them. He said they've reproached God and they went out and they slew a whole mess of Philistines and started a, a great victory. So that's reproach. That's the first reason. He will protect us from reproach so his name is not reproached. By putting a wall up around this city, Nehemiah said, we're a reproach right now because we have no wall. People look at us and say, you are less than a real city. You are less than a real country because your main city doesn't even have a wall around it. Second one is distress. He expects us to turn to him when situations rise up and cause distress. That's something we know that God does. When we hit a situation and it causes distress, he expects us to turn to him. But constant, ongoing ones he has looked to remove. And that's what we're looking at here. We see him talk about the distress that the people are in. That's a constant state of distress. Israel, when they were at the Red Sea, Egypt's army came up and they caused them distress. They were okay until the army showed up. And it caused them distress. But God's plan was to remove it from a long-term problem. God said, I'm going to remove this from being a distress issue for you for the rest of the time. We're going to wipe out this army. And that's what God did. No food in the wilderness caused them distress. But God's plan of manna was to remove it from being a long-term issue. Joseph falling into slavery in prison likely caused times of distress. Each time that new thing happened, each time he was put into, the first time he was put into slavery, probably caused him distress. First time he was put in the jail cell, probably caused him some distress. But God had a plan in each situation to move him up in the slavery position till he was head of the household. 
and in the prison until he was in charge of the prison. And the stress, the stressful situation was removed. Eventually, God's ultimate plan came in, came about, and there was no more distress. Here's the third. Faith. God did not always protect in a spectacular way, only when his plan made room for it. Abraham, we saw, he defeated five kings. That was pretty spectacular. The Red Sea, the cloud of cover that would come upon them, the fire by night, deliverance from enemies, showed the world that the Israelites were God's people. They were all pretty spectacular. Jericho's walls fell down. That was a pretty spectacular thing and that got people's attention. But sometimes such signs would cause repentance through fear instead of faith. Take you to the scripture in Luke chapter 10. Verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Those things would have been done, they would have repented, but it would have been a repentance through fear, not a repentance through faith. God always seemed to be able to do enough to not push you into the area of fear, but to keep you in the place where you had to have faith in God to believe, faith to repent. He doesn't want repentance because of fear. He wants repentance because of faith. Another reason that God may may have been wanting to do this is that locked doors discourage many would-be criminals from becoming a thief. You got your car door locked, somebody walking on by, sees the door's locked, moves on to another car. They're looking for an easy one. They're looking for somebody who leaves their car doors open. A locked door can discourage them. My grandfather used to always tell us, he said, a locked door just keeps honest people honest. If a thief really wants to get in, they'll get in. Now God won't control other people's will, but he's done things to discourage them from trying to go against them. If you just lock your door, you can cause people to be discouraged from going against the things of God and just choosing to not steal from you. If we put a wall up around this city, there's a whole lot of people who would just decide, I'm not going to go attack that city. I don't want to take on a walled city. God won't control their will and make them not do it. But we've seen in the scripture, he does a lot of things in the natural to get people to decide to do it God's way their decision still Pharaoh's decision to let the people go but God made it easier for him to make the right decision so why would God spend so much time and resources I think these reasons bring us to where it is because God had no problem protecting them I don't think he does this because of protection but I can see that he does this for reproach for the distress the constant state of distress that the people were in generally tries to, to remove that And if he continued to protect them in spectacular ways, then some people might repent not out of faith, but out of fear. And he wants them to repent out of faith. To see what he did for his people and to have faith in the God of Israel for that reason. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can get past the place where we imitate 
what others have done in faith and get to a place where we do what you put in our spirit to do in faith. That we obey the words that you speak to us because we have faith in them. Because we believe that what you told us to do would bring our situation to a place of change. Just as Nehemiah brought these people to a place of change as they faced the destruction of their city. Something they passed by every single day. But now they saw it that we can change it. There are things that are going on in our life that we have passed every single day. We have seen it all the time. And we have just become accustomed to that's how it is. Well, that always hurts. Well, I always think that way. Well, these things are always around in my life. Well, I've never been successful at anything. And we just let them be. But Father, just as the people here could be woken up to change something they saw every day, we can be woken up to change as well. We will be receptive to the words that you speak to us to ignite our faith and our belief that change can come. And I thank you for it in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.